Friends, on today's episode of The Citizen Stewart Show, we are very lucky to be joined by Carrie Rodriguez, co-founder and founding president of the National Parents Union. Carrie describes herself as the mother of Matthew, Miles, and David, and she was elected president of the National Parents Union in 2020. She's been called arguably the most successful parent organizer in education advocacy today. Her outstanding commitment to social, economic, and educational equity for children and families spans decades. Her work has been featured in The New York Times, NBC Nightly News, The Wall Street Journal, CNN, Fox News, The Washington Post, Political, and so on, and so on, and so on. We are very lucky to have her today to talk about where is the parents' rights movement today and what we can learn from her experience in trying to get real parents to have a real voice and have real power. And with no further ado, here is the show with Carrie Rodriguez. Carrie Rodriguez, thank you so much for joining us today. You are a vision, a bright light, a beacon on education advocacy. Listen, I just recognized in preparation for this show that you got me into Fox News somehow. So <laughs> yeah, this is weird. Imagine me being in Fox News. So there's this article in Fox News. It was on September 4th, 2023. Liberal parent advocate accuses Biden administration of cowardice on school wars. They're afraid to fight. And I think that that's a, uh, a quote from you in there somewhere. And then, you know, further down, if you scroll down into the issue, they pull you up, of course, and they quote you multiple times as being someone who is pushing the Biden administration to really find their power and their spine when it comes to fighting back on conservative education advocacy right now. And they put a tweet in there where you retweeted me. So now I feel very accomplished. Thanks to you. I've gotten into Fox News. <laughs> what a validation. Could you imagine me just being crabby in my kitchen? It will inspire an entire Fox News story. Like it wasn't even my birthday and what a gift. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I am doing exactly that and pushing the Biden administration. In fact, I'll be on a plane six o'clock tomorrow morning to do that more of that with the U.S. Senate, with the House. And then Friday we'll be with the administration. So you betcha. We're doing that 100% guilty. You know, it's been really amazing watching how far you've come in such a short amount of time in creating a national profile that gives access to regular parents from across the country who are often not heard to go into places like Congress and to the Hill and, you know, to have regular communications with the White House. To me, it's a fairly remarkable. It's probably one of the best parent advocacy ascension stories that happened so quickly that I can point to. There is this astroturfy parent rights movement that doesn't include a lot of us. It, it, it actually literally is not about a lot of us. It's about a small group of parents. So here you are. First of all, do you take the characterization of Fox News that you are a liberal parent group? <laughs> no. Well, I mean, you'd ask the liberals and they'd say, absolutely not. I mean, I will say I am an elected member of the Democratic State Committee here in Massachusetts. But I, I have to tell you, being a proud defer, a Democrat for education reform, like formally and, and informally, actually in solidarity with that group, they would take great exception because they give me holy hell on a regular basis about, you know, having to really you know, justify my progressive credentials, which I think is wild because what I am is a social justice organizer. I have done this work in the streets for 25 years. And I think, you know, I don't really, I'm not really at a point where I'm interested in justifying myself to anybody on the left or the right. 
what I'm here, I'm not, I'm not here to make friends. I'm literally here for justice. And as a person who has direct lived experience, having been underserved by these systems that we as Democrats say that we're trying to, you know, dismantle oppression and really address, you know, systemic racism and all of these other things, like the classism, all of the, you know, I'm here to hold them accountable on on the left and on the right. So honestly, I, you know, there was also an article, I think it was in the Atlantic or one of these, just a couple of weeks ago, calling us, you know, a leftist group, finally, you know, parents are, are, are finding avenues to enter politics. You know, I don't know. I, I think folks on the left would take exception to that. But I, I'm here to say what I'm trying to do is get the people who are closest to the pain close to the power so we can be a part of the solution because I believe we have the solution. And we've tried it the other way around and it doesn't work. So as I said, tomorrow I'm going down to D.C. I'm not going by myself. I'm bringing, you know, my whole clique, my cabinet, as we call ourselves, the Tafshir Cosby from Newark, New Jersey, who's done the work on the grassroots level and, and knows and loves and reps her city, but is is fighting hard for justice there. I'm bringing Bernita Bradley from Detroit, Michigan, who is the heart of Detroit and is the keeper of the heart of the National Parents Union and talks to parents across this country who are going through it every single day. And Ariel Taylor Smith, who's up there in Vermont and knows what it's like to live, you know, poor coming up through the system, not you know worried about survival and, and whether or not like we're actually going to be able to make it to the end of the week and, and have any food in our bellies. Like these are folks that, you know, didn't like learn about these things, you know, in graduate school. We all lived it, you know, as young people having to, to be underserved by these systems. And these are the people who need to be in conversation with these fancy folks in D.C. I love it so much because if you can take a person who yesterday was living in an under-resourced community and not being heard, and the next day they're in Washington, D.C., talking to some of the world's biggest kind of decision makers, that's a feat in itself, right? That's like uh, access and door opening in itself. So how you've made that happen in an organized way is very, very important. But let me let me ask you this, because you're deep in this work. What's top of mind for you right now? What is the thing in parent world, parent organizing and activism world right now that's keeping you up the most as of today? Kids are hungry and Republicans are trying to attack Title One. And, you know, our, our children, our families are under attack right now, economically, educationally and socially right now. We have created an environment and communities that are deeply unsafe for families to be able to provide for their children. It's tough out here. It's real tough out here. I yesterday spent all afternoon with families in Chelsea, Massachusetts, which is literally on the other side of the Tobin Bridge from Boston, most underperforming school district in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. I mean, these these folks go through it every single day. And they're talking about housing and how difficult it is. You can't find anybody to take your voucher. And when you do, the the conditions are are horrific. The fact that you can't make a hundred bucks stretch to payday if, if that's your grocery money for the week. And it is like hell out here. And all we hear about is cutting more SNAP benefits, cutting childcare assistance, you know, every single safety net that makes it possible for families to be able to survive is under attack at this moment. So Yes, we're also talking about education because these folks are deeply concerned. We were talking about pathways yesterday, like 
pathways to economic opportunity so our kids don't have to sign up for the same programs that some of these folks are on right now? What are the pathways that are possible to get them to economic mobility? And are they actually viable? Like is K through 12 education actually setting our kids up so they can access these pathways? That's the conversation. You know, we're, we're not like as much as I love being at the, at, at the tables of power, being able to talk the most important conversation I had all week was yesterday in Chelsea breaking bread with folks and saying like, what's good right now and what's not? And, and what do you need me to tell these folks down in DC on Friday about what they're missing about your life? And frankly, you know, these folks not only understand what the problems are, they have solutions. They could tell you out and point you out to all the problems in the system and what could be fixed and adjusted, but they don't even have the time to stop because every minute they take themselves away from work or trying to stay on top of these kids, like the survival is in the balance. But what we're trying to do is make it possible so that these are the folks who have the opportunity to take a minute to tell their personal story, to talk about the solutions, to maybe provide some context so we can actually start making some progress on this stuff. You know, first of all, it's very distressing that you said there's anybody that wants to cut Title I. It just seems like forever that has been an untouchable target for, for conservatives. But, you know, I guess now we're we're sliding and we're regressing backwards until to the point where now there are some conversations that can be had that maybe five or 10 years ago just would have been unthinkable. Like, you know, I thought that was settled science that we want to provide more resources for the schools, the students and the families that need it to be able to have a fair shot at getting a good education. I do want to say this as somebody who is politically homeless and you know this is nonpartisan show on a nonpartisan network. This is the most nonpartisan I can be about this. You just mentioned poor families that are really catching hell right now in a way that I don't think that us fancy middle class people understand when we're not missing a meal, right? I'm fat. So like you know I'm not missing a meal right now. So th this isn't really my problem. So it becomes really easy to not think about it, but there is bipartisan rulemaking or regulation that works against the poor. And on the right side, you just mentioned it, attacks on food, just attacks on the basics, you know, like, like, you know, the idea that we would have lunch debt in some schools and that people would argue about whether or not people, everybody deserves a free lunch from the United States of America. But, you know, Title I, SNAP benefits, WIC benefits, all the things that support families being economically secure and food secure and housing secure, that's one side of the equation. You can't care about children in the United States if you are constantly fighting programs that make sure that they get lifted out of poverty. But on the left side and, you know, on the Democratic side, when it comes to education, they are also putting up guardrails. When we think about school boundaries, we think about options in public schools creating new, new pathways and new choices. Those are deeply regulated by the left or by Democrats who create their own fences for poor people. I mean, the idea that you live in a community that's under-resourced, in a city that is under-resourced, with these boundaries of where you can go to school and what options will be available to you. That's not a right-wing thing. That's that's very much you know on the Dem side. How do we free poor people? <laughs> How do we free them of the restrictions that both the left and the right are putting up and putting barriers in their in their way? Well, when you make it possible for them to speak for themselves and give them the opportunity to lobby on behalf of themselves and themselves. They create, their, they create their own constituency. That's when the power shifts and changes. They don't have the luxury of showing up in D.C. and holding these folks accountable. And that's the problem, is that they don't represent a special interest 
you have people who speak on behalf of us and for us and all that, that go down there and have no proximity to the actual issues that they deal with every single day. So their issues aren't a priority. And I think that there are well-meaning people on the left that want to empathize with the plight of the poor. But if you have never experienced it firsthand and you don't know what that life is like, you're just guessing. And there's a lot of white and class saviorism that goes on where like you think you know what people need. You better and you talk about that, it. You better talk about it, Carrie Rodriguez. <laughs> like it's, it's wild though. Like the idea that because you have a lack of resources, somehow you have a lack of intelligence and should not be engaged on behalf of what you think of your own circumstances. It's, it's wild, the disrespect and humanity we even give to poor people. So the bottom line is, is like, it's all a caricature of, of what we think poor people are and what the struggle is and what the issues are, what they really need. And I think some folks try to guess and they guess wrong. And then, you know, frankly, you know, poor black and brown folks are just out there trying to survive. And they don't have the time or the luxury to be dealing with this drama and mess. They're literally trying to survive. So they disengage and back off because it doesn't, it doesn't prove to be beneficial or get them anywhere even when they do. So, I mean, it's the same thing when we talk about education and parent engagement, right? We're always talking, it's always the indictment, oh, these parents, they don't care, they don't show up. Well, the parents of today, are the underserved kids of the previous generation. Like just because you're poor black and brown does not mean you're stupid and you know when people are treating you less than. So if you're working two jobs and you have limited PTO, if you have any at all, and you have little limited time with your kid, do you think you're gonna spend a lot of time with people who hate you and disrespect you? Like, is that worth your time? Hell no, hell no you wouldn't. So it's the same thing, whether we're talking about the economic disaster we have or the education disaster. It's do you think that the people who are closest to the pain should have things done to them and for them? Or do you think we should include them in the conversation because they too, even though they lack resources, should not be withheld dignity and respect. Like that's, that's it for me. I, want, I wonder what you have learned in the couple of years that you've been doing this newer effort with the National Parents Union that would be instructive to us about the barriers that people who are under-resourced have with becoming advocates. I mean, when you are not a dual income household, college educated, upper middle class, you're not sitting around with all the time in the world to be knitting in the front of school board meetings and watching school board meetings, right? So what have you learned about the barriers and removing the barriers for people who aren't usually in the room to be in the room? Well, let's just call it out, Chris. Let's just call out the issue. You know what I get slack about or, or, or all gruff and side eye and this and that? I pay parents. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If parents take a day off of work or go down to Washington, D.C., I pay them a stipend. Do you know why? Because every union that I worked for paid their membership a stipend to take that day off and go to lobby day or go to that day of action. We have strike funds. We have all this other stuff. So they are paid for their labor because members in motion are valuable. My members in motion and parents in motion are valuable. And 
there's this really weird attitude that some folks have around, oh my gosh, like parents should just show up. Parents should just do this work for free. Parents should just give you their ideas and their thoughts and be a part of this conversation and not be compensated for their time because we don't value it. And so I value it. I think it's critically important. And I think what the National Parents Union has done is proven how valuable and powerful that it can be. But it's been heartbreaking to me. So for instance, we went down to Washington, D.C. to fight against a bill called H.R. 5, which was the so-called Parent Bill of Rights that was created without actual parents because it's a part of a political campaign. And so we went down there and we said, oh, hell no. Like, we're going to show up. We're going to bring 100 organizations from all over the country to represent the real, authentic, modern, intersectional families of the United States. And we're going to show up and we're going to speak on our own behalf because we don't need anybody to jack the mic. We don't need crazy people who are running a political campaign. We don't need teachers. We don't need anybody to speak for us. We can, we're grown ass people and we can speak for ourselves. So when we did that, you know, afterwards, we didn't tell anybody that we were going to pay them stipends because that's not like, we don't use that as an organizing tool. That is something that we expect to do for people to honor their labor and their effort and their talent and their expertise because it is of value to us. It's the most valuable thing that we have, but we didn't tell them. And so afterwards, we sent everybody checks. Yeah, it wasn't a lot of money. It was what we could afford, but it, it was more than a day's pay because we had them out for three days. And we, we people contacted me for months afterwards because they were so shocked that people thought that their time and their effort was valuable. And let me tell you, it was valuable because we shut them down. We did something extraordinarily powerful that other groups that had spent millions of dollars weren't able to do. That is valuable and powerful and is a huge asset and it should be paid. So how do we make people have the capacity? Because if we think that their work is valuable, we need to pay them. So they can actually do this work. Like it's it's not complicated. And frankly, everybody else down there is getting paid to be there. I'll tell you how what you're saying right now resonates with me is I wasn't always interested in activism in the way that I am now because I didn't know what doors were open to be able to do it. But people were always trying to organize me. And what you are saying right now, a good portion of my life, I was a paycheck to paycheck person. I was not only a paycheck to paycheck person, I was worse than that. I was a run completely out of money four days before payday person. So it wasn't even paycheck to paycheck, right? Like within the pay period, I know intimately what it means to run out of money in the middle of your pay period, right? Or to have some form of expense where you're like, oh, hell, here we go again. It's going to be $300 to fix my car. Well, there you go. I guess I'm going to be behind for two months now. So when you're living like that and someone shows up and says, hey, can you come to this thing? Can you come do this thing with me? And it's going to take up, you know, first of all, it might be on one of the on a day where you have a shift that you have to work because, you know, many of my jobs, the shifts were weird, weirdly scheduled. It wasn't a nine to five. It was, you know, all over the map. But I, I just remember thinking back then, wow, that's cool that you get paid to do this. Like, you know, the people were organizing me who were, you know, saying, hey, can you come to this thing all the time? I was like, wow, that looks like pretty good work you got going on there. Someone must really be paying you to do this. So I'm on a different side of the coin now. I understand a lot more about this. But what you were saying resonates with me because until you can see through that view, until you know what it's like to be in the middle of a pay period and be completely broke and knowing that if you miss just a three hour portion of your shift, if you just miss half a day, that the the fact that your cable might get cut off because you did that, 
or something else. I can tell you stories, and I'm sure you know stories too. You know some of the same stories I do of advocates who get called on all the time, who can't pay their rent, who when they come to things can't pay the parking for their car. So you and I have seen this. What do you do, Carrie, because you're a leader, like the money that does come to pay for parents to have an authentic voice oftentimes comes with a lot of worry of what the parents are going to say or do, right? Like there's there's a sense that we just want to pay the parents who are going to say just the thing we want to have. How can we open that up a little bit? <laughs> How can we reduce the fear that like parents might go rogue or they might say the wrong thing? Well, that is what is so crazy in this this whole situation. We only want parents. We want this perceived power that we give to parents and parent advocates and organization. Like, oh yes, we think you're so important and we think you're so valuable and your voice is critical, but you have to say these things because we don't think that your perspective and your lens as a critical stakeholder is valuable enough for you to be able to think thoughts in your own head and have your own perspective. That is so fundamentally disrespectful and wild. I I sometimes like in the education space, it makes me laugh because like, even as a parent, because like I go into meetings with folks and you know, the power dynamic between me as a parent versus a teacher who might be like, 24 years old and maybe two years out of college, (laughs) like who's talking to me like I'm not a grown ass woman. It's wild, Mm -hmm. you know, and I don't even I'm not even allowed to ask. um, I'm sorry. What what is your degree in? What is your background? Tell me about your theories on on educating children. And why do you like how do you plan to connect? I can't even ask those questions because the audacity that I may ask you about your background is like the power dynamic is off. So that just happens, you know, you know, it's exponentially worse as we we climb the ladder here. So like I've been in circumstances where I am brought in after the cake is baked and frosted to like, they'll ask me, well, would you like sprinkles on this? Or, or would you like chocolate chips? Cause we have this beautiful cake that we'd like to serve. That is not where parents and families need to be brought into the conversation. I want to be engaged when we're talking about, are you hungry? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Do you want a cake or a hamburger? What kind of hamburger you look? How do you like your your hamburger cooked? Like that's the part of the process where we need to be in the conversation. But they don't let us in there because they believe and they is kind of like this education establishment think that we're not capable of being a part of that level of conversation, which again is incredibly disrespectful. And people act as if we don't see it and we don't know it. We're not, again, grown-ass people like that are emotionally intelligent enough to know when we're being spoken down to. And so I think there was a, it's, it's kind of, I call it like 90s aughts parent organizing where it's parents as props and like, will you show up and hold our sign and here's the t-shirt we made and you don't even know why we're here and we don't have any translation so you don't even speak the language but stand there and fight, fight, fight and stand behind the people who are talking at the press conference kind of stuff. Like that is over. And that is one of the beautiful silver lines of the pandemic is that the toothpaste is out of the tube. We've seen too much. And we're not going back to those days. We have a perspective. 
We expect to be heard and we expect to be treated with dignity and respect. And this is a growing movement of people who aren't just concerned about one particular issue and running a campaign, but literally a movement of folks who believe that we as parents are truly the guardians of our children and the protectors of our children and want to be involved in the conversation because we have the previous experience of having been underserved kids ourselves and want to get our kids to economic mobility instead of another turn on the cycle of poverty. Like that's where we're trying to get to. Now, people don't like it because it requires them to yield power. And no one wants to do that. Even the folks that say they want to do that don't really want to do that. So it takes constant vigilance, not only for those who are very satisfied with the status quo and want to maintain it, but even with our own people, it's kind of like a circular firing squad where you've got to keep them in check and say, like, hold on a second. I don't need you to speak for me. I'm not a prop. I'm a future plaintiff. And you need to put some respect on it because you don't know everything that I'm coming to the table with. And our, our lens is different. And the last thing I just want to say on this, I know that the lens is different when I have to constantly correct people and say, parents don't have students. I don't have students. I have children. And that is very different because my level of investment is unique and different from anybody else's in this conversation. Because I'm not trying to get my kid to the end of a stage to be handed a piece of paper and say, job well done. Like I'm in it for the long haul. And that's why my focus is on economic mobility. Education to me is a means to economic mobility. That's why I'm not pledging allegiance to anybody's particular tactic around education. I want it all. I want all the governance models. I want all the different ideas. I want the latest technologies. I want to fix the existing system, all of that, because these are all tactics to get my kids to economic mobility. And that's what I'm here for. So it's it's a different perspective and one that I think is helpful in inspiring us to get more focus. But, you know, it's a fight even with our own people to get us to that point of the conversation. Yeah, it feels to me like we need more of a parent forum where parents who exist in many different places in the economy and in, in, in politics or whatever get to have their say. And it's not like one side or another. It's just real people saying, listen, this is what I care about. I am working a job I hate every day, and I don't want my child to be working a job that my child hates every day in the future. So I'm going to do this job that I hate every day and put up with the public or put up with these folks that I really don't like so that tomorrow, my kid, actually, I will be sitting somewhere looking really proud and thinking to myself, I'm glad you overcame it. That's exactly my story in a lot of ways, but it's a story of many parents that I know that, you know, we worked service industry jobs, we worked hospitality jobs, we worked all this, not because we wanted to be serving the public in that way or dealing with people's dirty ass hotel rooms or, you know, cleaning up slop off of floors and fast food restaurants and all those things. I've had a lot of jobs. I should do a show on the number of jobs that I did. Uh. Me too. <laughs> Music was like so important to me when I was a young person. So while I was trying to make high school work and, and I was an all state musician, but they couldn't keep me in the school. I was getting suspended all the time. It was wild, right? I got a full-time job at Tower Records. I worked at Sam Goody. Like I was trying to be around music, but I didn't have like access to any kind of opportunity. So I'm like, well, I'm going to work at a record store. Like that's 
that's what I thought I was going to do. I was, that was the, the goal I aspired to. Maybe I can be a district manager. <laughs> and for young people listening to this show right now, Tower Records was a place you went to to buy records. And a record is a thing that you used to put on a turntable. And a turntable is an electronic thing that used to spin a record which you probably don't know or haven't owned a lot of, to make music. <laughs> but, you know, where I was going with that is you mentioned parents having a variety of, of reasons why they come to the table and their their hopes, their dreams, their aspirations for their kids are different. And I just think we need a place where it isn't politically sided. It is more about just an open form. That gets messy sometimes. If America is truly interested in learning what parents really want, America will have a forum for it to be messy sometimes, just like America is messy. We have pluralism. We have different kinds of people, different groups, different families. And if we're only looking for one time, this this is my, my criticism, and I don't want to get you in any trouble. When we think about the parent economy, the money for parent activism and parent advocacy, if we look on the left money and the right money, one side of that is actually a group that will commodify and monetize our fears. Fear of trans people, fear of the minorities, fear of the other people coming, fear of the people that are going to take something away and displace you from your, your point of white privilege, you know, whatever. Those, those weird, wacky TikTok people coming after you, it's fears. So really the money invested on that side for parents are for parents to show up who have, uh, who are the cranks, who have like a problem with a group. Like, you know, you want the parents that are going to go to school board meeting or anywhere else and say that this trans stuff is going too far or whatnot. That's commodifying people's fears. And on the left, it's kind of the opposite. They're commodifying people's tears. They want you to come and cry and, you know, oh my God, this voucher saved my life, you know, and they want you to do all that. Oh my God, until this voucher came, you know, I, I was black or something. I don't know what it is, but it's your tears that they want you to come. I, I want to tell a quick story about this that still to today pisses me off. I remember a group, and I'm going to have to say this in a very smart way. I remember a group saying to me, Chris, can you send me some parents who aren't as articulate as the ones that I had sent them before? Because they came and they testified and they didn't seem black enough in some way, shape or form, even though they were low income, they were in poverty or whatnot. It just wasn't the right kind of sound, right type of thing. Like I was black central casting. Like I was just going to, oh, let me just pull that up for you right now. How weird is that, Carrie? How weird is it that, and I just want to be clear for the record, that was on the left side of the fence. That wasn't, that one wasn't even on the right side of the fence. So yeah, the thing is, it's not weird for me to hear because I have heard it so many times. It's horrifying, but it goes to my earlier point of what people really think of us because we need their saving and only their brilliant solutions that they've thought up around the fancy glass conference room table in the big building with golden doors can, can save the poor people, right? That is how we have done this in the past and that moment is over. It's over. Like, that is not happening anymore. And what we're trying to do is prove that not only is the moment over, because our movement is building bigger and bigger and bigger and stronger, but we're actually getting tangible things done. So let go of your fear that we might actually suggest something wrong, which is kind of wild because we have a vested interest in the success far more than any of these, anybody else in the conversation, maybe with the exception of the students themselves. Like we got to figure this out and make this work because if not, like children like mine are literally going to end up another cycle of poverty. 
They're going to end up in jail. They might have end up dead on the street. So I got to get this done. But th- but that's still the mentality. It's like, well, I want to have, can you get me, you know, 20 Latino kids who are, go- or, or young, you know, families that can talk about this, you know, see, I, I remember the seal of biliteracy here in Massachusetts. They wanted a particular demographic of parents to come out and say that this was so great. And actually the parents didn't think it was so great because a seal of biliteracy requires kids who start off with English as their main language to pass a far easier test than those that start off as monolingual Spanish speakers who actually have to pass an MCAS exam. So they were like, hold up a second. Yes, we think that it's important and we we can get behind this, but it's not fair. Well, we don't want you to say that. Can you get us parents that will just agree with what, like just the seal and think it's great? Like, no, I cannot. And no, I will not. Like, are you willing to be in conversation with the people who are going to be directly impacted? And I don't know, maybe some of the, the, the folks in the actual Spanish speaking parents that don't want their kids to be used as a tool to create boutique white experiences that teach your beautiful white children how to speak Spanish, but gets them literally nothing because the literacy proficiency in those schools ain't it. So can we have that conversation? Are we actually getting to justice? But it's a fight. It's an internal fight as well as the external fight to say no are you willing to accept feedback from the people who you want to use as props? And generally the answer is no. But when it comes to what's happening right now and watching this kind of people who have used parents as props in the past kind of fall apart, it's, it's kind of wild because you see people, you know, kind of on the right telling about themselves. Like I had folks who I had had courageous conversations with on the right that I didn't agree with, but we could find agreement in some education issues and, and some common ground. And I thought they had respect for me as a parent and as a leader, only to have them now aligning themselves with people like Moms for Liberty and using the excuse, well, you know, these are the real parents because these are the folks that have college degrees. And, and these are the who should be doing the real thinking for parents because those who maybe have been previously underserved, they're not qualified to be a part of this conversation. Like you told on yourself. And again, that's more toothpaste that's not going back in the tube because when this political campaign is over, because they all go through their cycles, because what we're seeing here is a campaign. It's not a movement. Movements that or campaigns that are built on hate tend to fizzle out eventually. You're going to come back and want to sing Kumbaya. We can build bridges, but I'm also drawing lines here. And that's going to be a hard line. Because if there's one thing about me, it's that I am going to also be a fierce protector of the folks that I asked to march side by side with me. And that's that's what what folks get twisted about the National Parents Union. Like, I'm one of them. Like, I just happen to be their ambassador and am a co-conspirator with them. And we do this work together in solidarity. This is a brother and sisterhood. This is a fraternity here. And we all have each other's backs in that way. And so that's going to be a hard no. And we're, we're not going back to that because we've seen, we've seen who you are. I really do want to see a real parent movement 
not just a campaign. I think you're right about the the Moms for Liberty types actually are working with a fuel that's like a fossil fuel. It's not a forever fuel. Hate can only go so far. And I think they're the product of a decision that was made on the right that we could either join all parents and have a real parents movement, or we could peel off the ones that actually we think have social and political power and, and utility to further our uh, agenda. And that actually works out to be a pretty good strategy. Like when you're just going after white middle-class women who are very fearful that their white children are going to hear or encounter an idea that's going to make them feel not so white, that's a fuel that's like pretty easy to live on for a period of time. The, the country is only getting more diverse. Public schools are already a majority minority enterprise in the United States. And the majority of the parents in public education, public schooling are not suburban white women. They are a mix of things. So banking on the white people versus everybody strategy is probably workable in the short term because there's so much white power in America, but it's not a forever thing. And I don't think it's a good plan for the future. Do You said something else that I want to just key in on, and then I'm going to leave it alone because I want to ask you a really provocative question. And you're going to beat me up for this question, but I'm going to ask you anyways. For the people that fund and think about how we fuel parent activism, I think some of you think that you're a philanthropist, but you're actually trying to be ventriloquists. You are literally trying to put your money up someone's butt and have them say the thing you want them to say as if they're a Bluetooth speaker and not actually an independent human being. That's not your commentary, Carrie. That's me. That's just Citizen Stewart on the Citizen Stewart show being able to say what I want to say. If you want to be a ventriloquist, I'm out. I'm out because I've been a parent at many different levels. I've been a parent for four decades. I know some challenges that I went through or whatnot. None of them involve me wanting to be your Bluetooth speaker. None of them involve me wanting to just be your mouthpiece. They all involve me wanting my kids to have access to a better life than I had and and a better chance than I had. All right. So let's transition off of that because I don't want to like, you know, on my <laughs> bring you on the show to ambush you with some of the inside baseball stuff on this, you know, parent advocacy. But anyways, here's the thing you're going to beat me up on. But let's say that I was a person who said to you, Carrie, listen, parents are their own worst enemies. They don't show up when they should show up. They are negligent. They are not doing all that they can do. If our parents were doing all that they can do, there would be no need for parent advocacy, right? And I'm channeling a line of thinking. So people listen to me. I like to at least surface the issues. If you're being honest, you know this is what people think. We did a poll at my organization, EdPost, years ago. And one of the outcomes of that poll that was so surprising to me was that parents blame other parents for school problems. Right. Like in that poll, when they asked, who do you think is most responsible for the failure of kids in that poll, parents actually blamed other parents. And it's really easy to do. So anyways, that's my question to you is there's this dominant thought. What do what do you make of this idea that parents aren't doing all that they could be doing? And if they were, their kids wouldn't be having so many issues. Well, I just think it's it's wild. And it also makes sense to me that parents would respond that way, because that's what the system is messaging, like everything is your fault. The reason the system is not working is because you're not working the system and you're not doing enough. And it's, it's incredible to watch that a system that is literally a system of oppression, like was created to educate only wealthy white folks that we had to fight and fight and fight and fight to get in. At every point, we're told we're not good enough. We don't want you. Get out. Do you, like At every point, trying to struggle to get into the system. And then seeing the results and the generational oppression and underserving over and over and over and over again. And no acknowledgement and no restorative justice with the people who were previously underserved 
as children because parents are former children. Like in the previous generation, sometimes we sat in the same seats. Sometimes it's the same educators. I have two children that attend a school that is named for the man who expelled me when I was a kid. Do you think even me being who I am in the world now, I want to show up to the Argenziano School in Somerville and have a conversation? Do you think it's not still traumatic for me? Like, and it doesn't bring me back to sitting at the end of that table and seeing teachers smirking and my building master laughing because he had been gutting after me for years and couldn't wait to get me the hell out of there. Like, it brings me right back there. Now, do I do it? Because, you know, the, the Argenziano PTO said, Carrie, will you come and talk to us about literacy? Because we don't understand. We're hearing that we're using this balanced literacy and it's bad for kids. I'm literally standing on the, on the playground with a group of parents having an outside PTO meeting, looking up at this man's name. And I, I had to stop in that meeting and say, oh, my God, like, I just want to acknowledge that I am... I'm feeling something right now, like just having to be in the presence of that. And if I don't show up for that conversation and we don't show up in those conversations because we were done wrong by education, we were failed. There were educators who literally told girls like me, you're going to end up dead or pregnant anyway. And like, you're a lot of work. Yeah, I was a lot of work. I was a kid who was growing up with a mother in addiction who was getting the crap beat out of her on a normal basis. Like it was getting thrown into DCF custody and going into a group home. I was a lot of work, but was I worth it? Like, did I have talent? And was I just a human being that was worth saving? To them, I wasn't. And I'm not unique because there are girls every single day that get pushed out and told that they're nothing and we're never going to be nothing because we came from nothing. And that this is just the way it is. And they're, the folks that are running the system are really comfortable, right? And so we have to go back and we're expected to show up brand new. We've had children who are beautiful and bright and full of promise and just as talented as we were. We don't give the system broken children. And that's where like the problem really lies. It's like they, they think that the day we show up in pre-K with this beautiful, for me, beautiful little boys, I didn't hand you broken children. I, I handed you children who were filled with promise and were bright and ready to learn and full of energy. And I poured love into them and I taught them manners and all of these things. I hand, That's what I gave. And you looked at that child and said, oh, it's from her, from that neighborhood, from, oh, I know that family. This kid is not going to be anything. Garbage just like the parent was. But you expect me to show up knowing, knowing that that's what you think of me and do my part through what you think my part is. And if I don't, you're going to indict me for not doing enough. And again, this is how we expect parents to show up and join the conversation, you know, because we drop that kid off and we got to go and work that job. Like if you're lucky to get it at market basket, or if you're lucky enough to be a bank teller or something like you're trying to like, hold on for dear life, you're working eight to five and maybe you can't show up at three o'clock in the afternoon for that conference or when, when they snap their fingers and want you there because you're trying to just survive so you can feed that baby and take care of that baby. But they'll tell you it's your fault. 
And they'll tell you it's your fault because kids aren't literate because that magic 20 minutes a night that we're supposed to, to spend reading to our kids, if we don't do that, apparently they will never learn to read. Parents aren't just supposed to be parents who are surviving and are the backbone of the American economy and work in their, our, our own jobs. We're also supposed to be literacy experts and overcome the deficits that they experience in classrooms six hours a day in 20 minutes a night. Like that's what you put on parents and that's the expectation. And it's all deflecting blame and, and giving an excuse as, as to why the system cannot evolve to be what it actually needs to be for kids based on what we know about how kids learn now and what they need to know for the jobs in the economy of the future. Because the people who are powerful in the conversation are the people who are comfortable and don't want anything to change because change requires work and effort and they don't want to do it. They'd rather blame us because we're not doing enough when we are doing everything we can from a wounded place because you put us in this wounded place and you wounded us. So, you know, it's wild to me, but that's really what it is. And there's never any talk about restorative justice with our community saying we have done deep harm as a system to your community, to you as people to your family. None of that. You see that, you know, you know, little, little sparks of that start to happen in the criminal justice reform community where police departments are having to acknowledge the trauma that they have inflicted on communities. Like that needs to happen in education because there's a direct correlation there. I think it's wild that education is the only system where we're now having a conversation around whether or not we need data and assessment anymore, you know, and and the idea that in criminal justice work, we would never say, well, FBI data isn't perfect. And boy, when it comes out, it makes the cops feel bad to be told that they're not doing a good job and they're racist and they got to change things around. We don't care about that. We're like, damn, these, these police departments are racist. They need to be reformed. This data is telling us. But in education, instead, we're like, well, you know, it makes people feel bad to know that they're not doing a good job. So maybe we should just not tell them they're doing a good job and stop testing people because that'll be better. What? Uh, so let me just say, everything you just said is like one of the most beautiful uh, ways to put, you just gave an essay that I think actually is like one of the best things I've ever heard you say. <laughs> like all of that together, like we do not send you broken children. We are the graduates of broken systems. Your systems are broken and we are giving you smart, funny, gregorious, happy little beings, and you are seeing them as different than they are when they come in. You're seeing them as deficits and a problem. And some of us remember, like the, the story that you tell, that you're in, that you're working with parents and you look up and you see the name on a school of the person who actually abused you when you were a student. And by that, I just want to be clear about the abuse. Expelled you, tried to, who gunned for you, who tried to make you a problem. You see, I'm wearing my hat that says problem child on it, you know, and here you are now all these years later as a parent showing back up and you see that name on the building. That is such a symbolic and beautiful way of telling the story about, you know, what Sharif El-Mackey, my, my homie says, is like for some parents asking them to come to the school is like returning to the scene of a crime. It's not this happy dappy thing where we have, you know, uh, nostalgia about it necessarily. And here we are, we have to be engaged with it because now my kid's in there too, right? We're bringing all this with us and your systems are still broken. 
And we know that they're still broken. And we know that you still look at our kids today in the way that you looked at us, like many of us, that when you looked at us as as disposable or throwaways or not college material or in some way, shape or form, a deficit, a problem. And you went so many places in this thing that you just said from storytelling to actual systems and policy thinking to even the specifics around how do we measure what we measure? How do we know what we know? How do we hold accountable the system that we know wasn't accountable for us when we were in it? I just have to commend you on what you just said. I got chills while you were talking. And I think, you know, at some point after the show, I'm going to go rewind it and go through all of this because you took it from a very smart and vulnerable place and start and you worked it all the way through the policy and the systems and how these things still kind of dog us as a people. And I love it. You do this often, but I think you do it in kind of different pieces and you just kind of, for me, put it all together. I'm not unique. I've heard parents talk about their experiences the same way. I am just blessed because I have had the opportunity to grab the mic and I've grabbed it, man. I snatched it. And what I'm trying to do now is hold on to it and pass it to everybody else that needs to be heard too. You know, and that's where we got to be co-conspirators for each other. Because I promise you, Chris, I, I am not unique. You know, and, and there are parents across this country who could tell you the same story if we are willing to listen, if we're ready to listen. And I don't know if we are, but we're going to fight like hell and we're not going to stop until we get there. We're making progress and we're getting there and we're forcing our way through the door. We're trying to hold the door open and get as many people in as we possibly can, as quickly as possible. That's what we're trying to do here, you know, because it can't just be my story because I know I'm not unique. Like I just, I was just in Chelsea yesterday. Like I said, like I... I have a GED from Boston Public Schools. I don't have, some of those women have more education than I do for crying out loud. Like I just got lucky enough to snatch up opportunities. They need the same thing. Well, I'll challenge you on a couple of things. First of all, you're unique. <laughs> you're very unique and God makes us each unique and provides us with unsurpassable worth, each one of us. And we have a piece of the puzzle to the liberation of all people. Like we have to put our piece of the puzzle on the table and you have put yours on the table. You have fit where the thing that God put in you to unlock for everybody else, you have unlocked and you're, you're sharing it now and you're helping other people unlock their puzzle pieces, which I think is actually what's going to get us to the real picture to like, you know, real salvation in the long term. I'm going to challenge you on something else too, though. This is selfish. This is Chris Stewart talking. This is Citizen Stewart talking to you. I'm challenging you about, you and I talked a little bit about this last week, but fathers. Dads, when we think about a parental rights movement and parents' rights and all that stuff, we're really honestly, if we're being honest, talking about moms, you know, oftentimes. And it is true that in the United States that 90-something percent of the educational decisions made for children are made by women. They're made by moms. So it is very true. I get why there's a focus on moms. But I think, first of all, I think that black dads are invisible. So it's kind of my ministry to make black dads visible and the fathering that we do visible and celebrate the fathering that we do and lift up our anxieties, our concerns, our insecurities, the things that make us feel small and inconsequential. As a dad who used to show up to some things at schools, I was often surrounded by women in those rooms and it was a very feminized space. And I felt like, you know, lots, there's just 
such weird kind of cultural interactions. You don't want to seem like the angry black dad when some when you should be angry on some things. You don't want to come across as aggressive when you should be aggressive on some of the things that are happening with your child. And that kind of needing to constantly moderate, feeling invisible, feeling like it's a highly feminized space is something I think we should all do the work to get more fathers in the view and get them in power and get them seeing their power. I think not only I think, I think research tells us that most of America has the wrong ideas about fathers, and specifically about fathers of color. Like we are not seen as the the good dad. If you do a Google search for images on good fathers or something like that, it is all going to be white dads popping up and nothing against, you know, I, some of my best friends are white people. So, and white friends. So, you know, this, this isn't a rip on you guys. It's just to say that Google search actually should be showing all of the work that we do every day. Many black men, many brown men, many men of color go to work every day doing crappy jobs they don't want to do because they want to buy the prom dress for their daughter or because they want to do get their kid a bat for baseball or they want to you know do something specific and that never gets acknowledged we are left out of the parents movement so you and i talked about this that's a long kind of i think way of saying you and i talked about this last week i think you you already have it in your view but i hope the rest of parent world starts putting a little bit of effort into seeing fathers see good fathers if you are a black father and you feel like you are struggling to get into the spaces where you feel you need to be for your perspective we have a place for you you are wanted, you are needed, you are valued in our space. And I'm not just saying that. One of our members of the, the board of directors, we're actually making this a priority. We made Sam Radford, who is the pride of Buffalo, New York, and we call him the GOAT, has been, he's, he's a father, he's a grandfather, and he is one of the most powerful parent organizers, one of the smartest, most strategic, has been in the conversation, has been in the room at the White House and is ready and is focusing us on making sure that when we talk about building an intersectional movement, we're talking about making sure that black fathers, brown fathers are at that table right alongside with us. And he showed us how it's been done. He is ready to to lock arms and bring all along. If there's if there's anything that's keeping you from, from joining the conversation, whether it's access or not knowing where to start, start with us. And we want to be a help. We want to be a blessing. That's that's kind of what we say. It's it's inside baseball, the National Parents Unit. It's our goal that when you see us or our logo, if you are a parent, that you view us as a blessing. We've come to help. We are in service. We view this as service work to parents. So if you don't know where to start and you want to know where to start, or you're, you've started and you want to get on to the next level, like we want to be helpful, reach out and we will be there. This is like amazing. And everything you just said is what public schools themselves should be saying. <laughs> everything you just said is what superintendents should be saying and school state leaders. You are valuable. We are here for you. We will help you get to the next level of your fathering and all of that. I'm glad you said it. It's also, I would feel great if all of education world would start saying that, put that message out there. Well, anyways, listen, this has been a great time. You and I are going to talk again, I know for sure. And we really appreciate your time coming on today. But before we go, I would love to just give you the floor to say, uh, leave people with anything that you want to leave them with in terms of how they can participate, how they can reach you and what you would have them do. Like what's the action step here for people to take? I want to say to parents and other folks 
who identify as parents. Like we have a lot of people in this space who will pull me to the side and they'll be a fancy policy wonk or they won't work at a think tank or work in politics and be like, oh gosh, I so support what you do. And I, I hear you as a parent and it's so important and I wish I could do it. You can do it and we need you to do it. And we need you to join us. If you go to nationalparentsunion.org, we have... Tafshir Cosby Thomas, who is our senior director of organizing. We have national organizers across the country, an affiliate network of almost 1,500 other groups that have joined on in solidarity and are partners in this work and stand shoulder to shoulder. We're not alone in this anymore. And we've built this infrastructure, not just to, to win you know, political victories, but to be make sure that nobody has to be alone in this work anymore. And we need more people to join us and to, to join us in partnership. So reach out. We can help. We want to be a blessing and we want to be a support because we really feel like the only way we're going to be able to focus all of our, our efforts on our North Star, which is getting our kids to better lives. We say economic mobility, but that's a better, easier life so that you can have a human existence that's that's filled with dignity and respect and maybe have some joy in your life. We got to keep everybody focused in politics and policy on the fact that we do this for children, not to preserve systems, not to make the grown-ups happy and make them comfortable, but because we want our, our children and our children's children to have better lives than us. So we need your help. Come along. Very well said. Kerry Rodriguez, founder and president of the National Parents Union. Thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate you. Thank you, friend. The Citizen Stewart Show is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. I'm Chris Citizen Stewart. You can follow me at Citizen Stewart. You can follow Ravi at Ravi M. Gupta. You can follow all of the Branch's podcasts at The Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so you can join us every Tuesday for more of The Citizen Stewart Show.